You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. What I'm suggesting to us these fall Sundays is that the book of Hebrews is like a photo album. We get these pictures of Jesus. And they're not pictures so much of Jesus in his earthly ministry as they are Jesus in his heavenly ministry, what he's doing today, even right now. Uh, We saw in chapter 2 that Jesus is our pioneer. He's our champion. He takes away the fear of death. That's big. Today, in chapter 4, we're going to see that he is our Sabbath rest, our Sabbath rest, and how much we need that ministry today. Let's open up our uh, Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible, please grab the black book on the pew rack in front of you there and turn to page 972. I'm going to read the text myself to help you catch a little bit of the inflection and meaning of the passage. It's a complicated passage in which he cites a number of other biblical texts. So just relax and listen as I read. When I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're hearing God's holy word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, it says, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains open for some to enter it, and those who who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he sets a certain day today, saying through David much later, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall through disobedience as theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Lord Jesus, you are the Word made flesh. Through your Holy Spirit, you inspired this passage to be written just as it was. Now send that same Spirit into our lives to speak to us. May we not just hear the voice of a preacher, but the voice of our Savior speaking and inviting us to rest. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing the letter to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus did is he sat down. If you've been reading Hebrews, it's right there in the first paragraph of the letter. There's a lot of information about Jesus there. It says, you know, long ago, God spoke through prophets. Now he's spoken through his son. 
this is a son who, we read, reflecting his glory, sustaining all things with his word, having made purification for his sins. Now we get the main verb of of the sentence. And by the way, in Greek, it's one long sentence. He has sat down. That's the first thing the writer tells you. Jesus has done. Now, that's not such an unusual picture of Jesus, someone sitting in a chair, I assume, but I want to suggest to you today, it's extremely challenging to me, if not to you. This picture of Jesus at rest is a profoundly countercultural picture in the 21st century. Jesus is at rest, and he invites the reader, the writer of the Hebrews invites his readers to enter into that rest, to sit down with Jesus. It's not so much an invitation, it's actually a warning. The very first word of chapter 4 is the word fear. He's saying, let us be afraid, unless any of us should miss the rest that Jesus came to give. The problem is, you and I tend not to know how to rest. Benjamin Franklin said time is money, and if that was true in 18th century Philadelphia, how much more true in 21st century Seattle? We've come to believe here that uh, to be busy is actually a virtue. Uh, we as uh, gets more and more expensive to live in Seattle. There's more and more that we have to do in order to pay the bills. We have less and less time in which to do it. Our city is growing faster than any other city in America, and our lifestyle is becoming famous, if not infamous. We are the place that sort of make global travel possible. We make airplanes. We're the place that invented desktop computers. We make software. We are the place that invented one-click shopping, right? We are into efficiency and time-saving and profits. But it's gotten so crazy that now it's not just eating your lunch anymore. Now you're eating your lunch and you're walking across campus and you're talking on your phone. And you're checking email, right? Triple tasking. Experts tell us there's a name for this. It's a diagnosis. It's called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. I think I've got it. I'll just tell you. Uh, my name is George, and I have hurry sickness. To, uh, to have hurry sickness is to, c- to continually, compulsively believe that you have more to do than the time allows. And the symptoms include rushing, anxiety, frustration, irritability. We tend to interrupt one another. We tend to cut each other off on the road. We tend to be chronically late. We eat poorly. We eat alone. Uh, We don't sleep well except in meetings. We find ourselves switching lines at the grocery store to optimize. Uh, We multitask, but it's not just multitasking. It's multitasking so much that you forget one of the tasks. That's a sign of hurry sickness. Uh, We, and this is a true story, we sometimes forget to pick up our kid at school. We're so busy. Uh, We drop our phones in the toilet. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Well, I don't know if in the first century they had hurry sickness. I really don't know. Remember, I told you that this letter is most likely written to a house church in Rome around the 60s, in 80-60s. means about a dozen people, two dozen people. And uh, we don't know if they have hurry sickness, but what we do know is that they're running hard and they're getting tired of it. They're so tired in the midst of the struggle that they're tempted to walk away from Jesus. In chapter 12, the writer will have to say to them, do not, be, do not weary, be wearied, 
or lose heart. And they've got a lot of reason to as Nero starts to bear down on the followers of Jesus in persecution. This writer seems to be saying, you know, the struggle is real. I get it. But the question is not whether or not we will struggle in life. The question is whether we will find rest in the midst of the struggle. And he invites them, even warns them. I don't want anybody to miss the rest that Jesus offers us. And here's where we get this beautiful picture. Let's look at verse 9. Please leave your Bible open here. It'll be helpful as we talk. He says, so then a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. Now, that phrase, Sabbath rest, is in Greek just one word. It's actually, this is the only place in the whole Bible, Greek, Old or New Testament, where this word shows up. It, it may be that the writer invented a word at this point to describe this kind of rest. He took a noun, Sabbath, and turned it into a condition, rest. It's a state of being, Sabbath rest. Now, this is not the kind of rest that you find at a certain time or place. This is the kind of rest that you find only in a person. Sabbath rest is what we find in Jesus. Jesus is the one who says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is about Jesus. So there is healing for those of us who have hurry sickness. We can be healed. And this text offers us three prescriptions. So let me run you through the three prescriptions. The first one is this, make time for what's important. Can you do that this week? Make time for what's important. Sabbath rest. Now, the word Sabbath, the Hebrew word for Sabbath is uh, from the verb Shabbat, and it means to stop. It means to stop. Friends, you have to stop if you want to start doing what's important. The Greek word that's used nine times here is also another Greek word. It's the word for stop plus the word for down, as though to say, get down and rest. Get prone. Just deflate all the energy, all the anxiety, all of the excessive compulsions to perform and just stop. To make time for what's important means you got to stop doing things that are killing you. That's the first part of it, that are not good for you. Any quotes here, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, it's actually the center of this text. He structures it quite deliberately, and he quotes from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and God rested on the seventh day. He's saying, look, I'm going to tell you how the world is made. The whole universe has rest built into the center of it. You and I live in a world where electric lighting and global communication allow us to believe that we could be sort of virtual beings in many places and times all at once. And uh, this writer is saying, no, actually, you're a creature created by God. You're not omnipresent. You're not omnipotent. And you've got to deal with that as reality. Sometimes we like to skirt reality. Uh, you learn this lesson that, you know, if you're trying to take a tree, a dead tree out, and you think, oh, I got a clever idea. I can just tie that tree to the bumper of my car, and you pull the car out. You know what's going to happen? The tree's going to stay right there, and uh, if you're lucky, the rope breaks, but if you're not, George, the bumper comes off, okay? It's so, like, it just doesn't work that way. It wasn't designed to work that way, and you can deny the fact that you're embodied, that your soul is in a body, and that you have physical limitations, 
but um, you will eventually break on the reality that you've got to slow down. You've got to stop. Hurry sickness hurts our physical health. You healthcare workers tell us these elevated levels of cortisol or stress hormones will shorten our life, that they are actually uh, killing us. Hurry sickness threatens our relational health. It's the reason why so many of us are struggling with the epidemic of aloneness, because it takes time to build intimacy into relationships and to actually have a community around you. Hurry sickness hurts our spiritual health, health, insofar as we don't have opportunities anymore to rest and to reflect on the meaning of life and the presence of God in our life. Stop doing things that aren't good for you. The other part of this is stop doing things that aren't the best for you. See, the Sabbath was a time to realign to new priorities. Israel was told, take one day a week to stop and reflect on the meaning of life. Why creation? The seventh day is the day that's set aside as holy because we remember there's God. Oh, yeah, there's God. My work is not God. We talk about the demands of work. It's so easy to just get caught up in the demands of work and just sort of obediently respond, slavishly respond. The Israelites said, no, on, on that seventh day, you will stop and you'll realize there's a good God out there. Your history paper is not supreme. Your billing sheet is not God. See, and when you stop, you have an opportunity to reorient your priorities around the things that really matter. This is what, why weekly worship is so important to me. It's not about the content. It's about the rhythm and the practice of coming in here, listening to you sing, joining with you and realizing, oh my gosh, yeah, this is the stuff that really matters to me. And it puts everything else in perspective. Stop doing things that aren't the best for you. I'm writing this, I'm writing this sermon this week. I get to this point. And I realized my son has invited me to come to his work. His workplace has Parents' Day, which I get a kick out of. Uh, so I'm about, so, and I, you know, it happens to be on the, 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 the longest, most stressful, most important, hardest day of the week for me in any given week. And everything inside of me says, I can't do it. I'm sorry. And, you know, take pictures. Uh, tell me all about it at dinner. I can't come. But you know what? Something in this moment said, no, George, you got to stop. This is your boy. He doesn't have any other father. And your primary role right now is in that family. I know you think this sermon is really important to you, and it is important to me, but it's not more important than my relationship with my son. Yeah. I got it right. <laughs> Finally. I got it right. And I said, oh, like, it's like two. It was like, it was like 10 to 2. It's a nuclear bomb in the middle of my day. But I went... I got on my bike and I rode down there and it was awesome. I'm so proud of my son. And it was so meaningful to me to be a part of this life and be able to see his office and hear what they do. Um, and you know what? That's what rest does. It reorients your priorities so that, so that we don't get to the end of our lives and realize we had fulfilled our work, had great careers, but didn't live a life worthy of who we are. So stop. An elder sent this this letter. Uh, Two years ago, I decided to do something about my obsession with busyness. Good for you. He writes, I relinquished many job responsibilities so I could start work later, finish work earlier, and generally slow down. I also wanted to do this to improve relationships with my wife and children and spend more time in kingdom work. I tell you this not to brag, but to tell you and encourage others to try it. It works. 
And this is interesting. This will be one of the main themes for the rest of my days. That's a person who has just reclaimed their lives. They're learning how to stop. That's the first prescription. Make time for what's important. Here's the second one. Live in the present. Can you do that this week? Live in the present. This writer, as he writes, quotes Genesis 2, as I just pointed out, but also Genesis, I'm sorry, Psalm 95. Here it is in verse 7. Jump down a few verses. He says, again, he, that's God, sets a certain date today. And his point is, God has a time for rest. He set a certain time for rest, and that time is, wasn't yesterday, it's not tomorrow, it's today. It's the present. Okay? Live in the present. Now, here's the problem I have with this. In my experience, most of us, when we start to feel depleted and exhausted, tend to think about tomorrow. We start to develop what I call a someday mentality. We think, oh, well, when, you know, the whatever, when the weekend comes, I'll get rest. When I get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you know, when I get better housing, when there's more money and my income is higher, when I could be in a special place with palm trees, when uh, I get a better job, when there's no job and I get to retire, okay? We, we, we start to go into someday mentality. The problem with that is that we miss what God is offering us today, right now. And the text tells us really clearly, God is speaking to you today. He, this Sabbath rest is trying to get your attention today. It's there. It's just that you're looking in the wrong place. God doesn't engage us someday. God engages us now, right here, right now. Now, in citing Psalm 95, which was written by David, he's remembering ancient Israel. He's remembering the day of Joshua. And some of you know this story. Remember, God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then on a fairly short journey took them to the promised land. They get to a place called Kadesh, which is right on the cusp of the promised land. They send some spies. They send Joshua and Caleb and 10 others. They go check out this place that God promised to give them rest. And they come back and they say, it's spectacular. It's absolutely paradise. Problem is, it's already occupied by really large, technologically advanced people. And they are not necessarily putting out the welcome mat. Okay? And so how did they respond? Well, Psalm 95 tells us they turned away. They said, you know, maybe this isn't our time. Maybe this isn't our place for rest. I think we were better off in Egypt. And they missed it. They missed the moment that God was about to give them great rest. Ann Wells, columnist for the LA Times, wrote several years ago about her brother-in-law. Her brother-in-law pulled something out of a dresser, like a necklace, and it was his sister's dresser, and this necklace was carefully wrapped in tissue, still had the price tag on it. And he said to Ann about his wife, Jan bought this the first time we went to New York at least eight or nine years ago. She never wore it. She was saving it for a special occasion. Well, I guess this is the occasion. He took the slip, uh, the um, price tag and the necklace from me and put it on the bed with the other clothes we were taking to the mortician. Then he turned to me. Don't ever save anything for a special occasion. Every day you're alive, 
is a special occasion. And I think she's right. That's what I need more of in my life, a sense of what God is doing right here, right now in front of me to draw me deeper into the peace of Christ. I want to have a a today mentality. See, the someday mentality conditions us to try to find peace or rest in our circumstances, time and place, and things that work where things work well. And we're constantly trying to manipulate or control our circumstances to give us what we think we need, but we won't find it there. Actually, we find it in God and in Him alone. Actually, God wants to give us rest so that we can then have the energy to change our circumstances. He doesn't say, let me change your circumstances so that you can find rest. It's in the midst of the struggle that Jesus asks us to come to him. Jesus says, I know your burdens. I know what you're going through right now. I know all about it. And I know that you have the capacity to carry those burdens. And when you no longer have the capacity to carry those burdens, I'm going to carry you. That's our Savior. That's our Sabbath rest. It's just who he is. So I love it in Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is a psalm that says, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. It's kind of like I feel when I read the news these days. The climax, though, of the psalm is not stress out, not get busy. It's be still and know that I am God. And that's the invitation for us today. Be still and know that I am God. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. That's the second prescription, live in the present. The third prescription is this, bring the gospel to work. One of the things I love about this passage is um, he's coaching his readers in what we call gospel fluency. We've talked about this. We as a congregation, we want to grow in gospel fluency. But we don't have just like a phrase book for gospels, little, little phrases like where's the restroom, as so many of us do. We want to be fluent in the gospel so that we can apply it to our lives and the lives of people around us. And he's doing that. Notice verse 2. He says, for indeed, the good news, that's the gospel, came to us just as it did to them. He's saying rest is really a factor, a function more of how you respond to the gospel than it is about the circumstances in your life. Good news came to them. That's Joshua in his day. Good news comes to us. By the way, there's a play on words here in verse 8 where it says, for if Joshua had given them rest. And when you read this in the Greek, as I did, was I was translating this this week, you read that and you, you, you translate it for if Jesus had given them rest. And you go, wait a minute. No, the context is about Joshua. Well, what you need to know is the word Joshua and Jesus are the same name. It means the Lord redeems, rescues, and saves. And Joshua is just the Hebrew form of it, and Jesus is the Greek form of it. And so there's this play on words where I realize, oh, my gosh, Joshua didn't get God's people into rest, but the writer here is saying, but Jesus always does. He will. Through the gospel. So I say to you, bring the gospel to your work. Remember, in the wilderness, there was this movement from fear, the giants are great, and we don't have what we need to get in there, to faith, God speaking, God promising. I would like to suggest to you that the deep fatigue that you and I tend to feel at times doesn't come from our work. It comes from the work behind our work. It comes from our motivations. It comes from the reasons we do our work. It comes from the things that we're hoping our work can give us that, frankly, only Jesus really can give us. It's not so much about the struggle. It's about the way we face the struggle. 
So let me just pause and ask you, why do you work? Why are you a student? Why are you an intern? Why are you an athlete? Why are you a volunteer? Why are you a grandparent? I mean, whatever you do, just ask yourself, what's the work behind that? What, what, are the, what am I trying to really do here? People typically would answer, well, I got to pay the bills. I got to stay alive. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, we want that. I, I, I'm trying to create security for myself, for my loved ones. I work to express myself, to, to gain a sense of importance in the world, to find fulfillment. I don't know, all that stuff. You know, it's not that those things are bad things. But I want to just ask you, can your work really give you all of that? I'm really skeptical about that. Let me tell you a story. When I was a university student many moons ago, I, uh, car- for a while, I carried a bottle of Mylanta in my backpack around several months. And here's why. There was this huge transition from fear to faith going on in my life. Uh, I thought that I had to be a high-powered lawyer. I picked this up. Now, I, I have wonderful parents, but I did not grow up in a church family. I did not grow up being taught about the good news in Jesus. When I got to college, somebody invited me into a small group, and I said, okay. Eventually, it took a year, but I said, okay. okay. So I got involved in a small group, terrified of all these religious people and what it was going to mean. But here's what happened. We were opening the Bible, and somebody read one day from Matthew chapter 6. And, and, and here, remember, I'm a guy who's thinking to myself, what I got to do in life is this. I got to get the best grades so I get the best transcript so I can go to the best graduate school so that I can have the best resume so that I can get hired by the best law school so I can be the very best lawyer, right? And I'm thinking that that's what I have to do because the work behind the work is I need acceptance. I need worth. I need security. All the things. Now, somebody reads Matthew 6 and here's Jesus saying, why do you worry about all this stuff? He said, look at the birds of the air. Your father father in heaven, they neither uh, toil, no, they neither sow nor reap, but your father in heaven provides for them. Look at the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin, yet their clothes are better looking than Solomon. And I'm going, what? What? What is Jesus saying? Is he trying to communicate that you don't need to get all this stuff through your work? What am I working for? The truth is I realized in that moment I didn't like law at all. I hated law. I'd worked in a law firm for three summers already, and I despised it. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I thought I had to be. I was trying to get security. I wanted my parents to approve of me. I wanted to have influence or be a person of... I wanted to be able to look in the mirror and go, you're okay, George. And I'm looking at Jesus, and he's saying, you know, your heavenly father says, George, you're okay, George, right now before you do anything. Look, I'm going to provide for you. I know what you need, and I know how to get it to you. I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I've had it all upside down. And now the invitation is to work because I want to, because I I enjoy what I'm doing, because it gives me an opportunity to serve people and to serve Jesus. And I just like the way it resonates with who I am as a person. Man, that's a huge shift. So bringing the gospel to my work has changed everything. I wonder about you. I wonder what happens when you bring the gospel to your work. You might find yourself sitting somewhere uh, tomorrow, and I'll actually think about why do I do this? To what extent am I trying to get my identity or security or prestige or work or influence here? And as you think about that, then start to preach the gospel to yourself and start to move from a work based, a fear based mentality to a gospel based, a joy based, a rest based mentality. 
Well, let me wrap up. If we came today with hurry sickness, the good news is you and I could be healed. We can be healed. It's not going to happen by ourselves. We can't do it to ourselves. But Jesus truly can heal us. And, he's, and this is the invitation. Sabbath rest. Come to me. Just to review, there are three prescriptions. Make time for what's important. Live in the present. Bring, your gospel, bring the gospel to work. But all of that is, to say it more simply, means sit down. Sit down. And that's the assignment this week. I want you to find a chair or some moss in Seattle <laughs> and sit down. Not to work, but maybe, I don't know, to read, to look at the sky, stars, to smell the pine, maybe to write a letter, put something in a journal, ask God who you are, sit down. It's that simple. And we can do it because we know that the decisive work in the universe has been done. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He sits down to signify that rest has begun, and soon it will be complete for all of creation. And so let's sit down. Now, if you do this this week, you're going to feel like it's unnatural, like you're wasting time. That's good, but it's not unnatural. It's actually what you're created to do. When you sit down, you need to know you're sitting with Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says this, God has seated us with him in the heavenly places. Already in heaven, friends, you and I are sitting down with Jesus. It's the most natural of all possible postures. Let's do it this week. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are weary and heavy laden, and we don't know how to fix it. Thank you for inviting us here today to speak convincingly through your word, a word of invitation. Pour out your Holy Spirit to change the way we live. Give us new, fresh practices. Make us agents of rest for a weary world. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.